0: From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. Conventional wisdom would have us keep our options open. Don't commit until you have to, and even then, always have a backup plan. The world's a big place with lots of choices, and you deserve your crack at all of them. That might be conventional wisdom, but our guest today, Pete Davis, firmly disagrees. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it. It's called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And in it, Pete lays out not only why committing ourselves to something greater can give our lives more meaning and purpose, but why commitment can lead us to becoming more engaged and effective citizens of our world. Pete is a civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia, and a graduate of Harvard Law School, where his graduation speech, a counterculture of commitment, went viral. As he says in our interview, his passion isn't just for commitment. His passion is about deepening American solidarity and democracy. To that end, Pete co-founded the Democracy Policy Network, and he travels the country promoting projects and initiatives that build up local democratic institutions thus giving more people more power over their political and civic lives. As you listen to Pete talk, you'll note that the principles of Catholic social teaching and Ignatian spirituality are never far from his mind. Pete gives us a masterclass in how to translate the Ignatian tradition into political engagement, and how to do so with joy. You can learn more about Pete and his work at PeteDavis.org. Now, here's my conversation with Pete Davis. Pete Davis, welcome to AMDG, we're glad you're with us today. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you um cuz you, you you write on all sorts of wonderful things that are super relevant um to to our moment and and I think to kind of the spiritual lives of of so many people. So I want to I want to start off with uh talking about your your book dedicated. Um and just you know I I know you have a whole book on this, but I'm wondering if you can give the elevator pitch, kind of make your case um for why commitment is is both so important and why it's so countercultural.
1: Yeah, you know, the the Basic case is that I think so many people my age, I'm a uh, like mid right in the middle of the millennials. So I can only speak for, you know, the people my age that I know and myself, but maybe it applies to others as well. We feel like we're trapped in what I call infinite browsing mode in so many aspects of our life. And I call it infinite browsing mode kind of based on the idea of the Netflix home screen. You know, you know that feeling when you log on to the Netflix home screen and there's hundreds of different movies in which to choose. And you end up never choosing a movie because you are grappling between all of them. And you never pick a, a, a movie and enjoy it. And then you find yourself 30 minutes later in this haze. Um, and you're just like, I oh, might as well turn it off and go to sleep. And I feel like that. You know, I wrote this book and gave the speech that inspired the book because I feel like so much of that was happening in so much of our lives. Um, You know, we feel like there are all these different things that we could attend to all these different novelties. We can choose all these different places we can go or people we can connect with or communities or institutions or vocations or things like that. And so many of us feel like we're stuck on the browsing um, screen of life. So that's the negative story. But the positive story. Is that the people that decide to click out of infinite browsing mode the people that decide to leave the hallway of life the people that decide not to live by what seems to be the creed of our time keeping our options open and instead decide to make commitments to particular things over the long haul and show their love for those things by sticking with them um those are the people that are not only the people that are really making an impact you know uh repairing the breach restoring the institutions, making the change. They're also the people that are finding the most kind of joy and meaning in their life. Um, and I call those people long haul heroes, you know, people that make commitments to particular things and enter into relationships with things outside of themselves that are larger than themselves. And, um, you know, I think I, I I think this path much more than choosing the particular thing, the act of choosing and committing in itself, um, it might be the secret uh, the changes we want to make and the joy that we want to find.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I, I also am right in the middle of the millennials, and uh, and have med- had many a night where I've watched nothing because we've we've just spent you know <laughs> sitting there on watching Netflix. But you, you said something um, that really uh, struck me. You said that the folks that, that kind of click in or or, or or make that decision um, and and kind of foster I forget what you said, but something effective like to show the love they have for this thing. Um, they're they're the, you know they kind of go on to become these long haul heroes. And I wonder if if you can kind of reflect more on this idea that. Um, when you click in or, or when you make this decision, the idea that you're, you're investing yourself, you're investing your love in something, how, how can this commitment to decision help us to maybe, maybe fall in love more with either our own uh, vocations, our own, uh, our own selves, our, our own partners, whatever the case may be? How does that, that sense of love flourish by commitment?
1: And I'm so glad you brought up love because, you know, I I wrote this whole book on commitment and, you know, people call me up and they're like, oh, what's your take on commitment? We want to do a story on commitment. And I I, I actually I have this kind of embarrassing discovery from the kind of years after the speech and the book came out where I think what I'm really talking about is not commitment. Hmm. What I'm talking about is relationship. And commitment just happened to be like a very close cousin of relationship. Because what we're really talking about here when we're saying, you know, we're going to take up our role as a citizen and, you know, love a place. Or if we're going to take up a role of a steward and love an institution or take up the role of a builder and love an idea into reality. Or take up the role of an artisan and love a community of craft or take up the role of a companion and love a specific person. You know, all of that, it's, you know, the act is committing, it's making a decision, and then sticking with it, you know, put it, becoming a long-haul hero over the long run by sticking with it, you know, every Tuesday night where you have to run the meeting, or keeping returning to that same person, even though the times sometimes are difficult or boring or tedious, or keeping returning to that craft community, even though sometimes it's hard, um, especially at the start. All of that is really a story of, Entering into a relationship with something outside of yourself. And what is the binding material of all relationships? It's love. Um, and in fact, we learn something about, we learn the depths of what love is, not in the apocalyptic moment of, you know, the boombox over the head <laughs> or, or the grand speech where you say, we're going to do this. It's actually in the ordinary long haul work day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out. That's where you discover what love is, what the beauty of that connection is. And here's what's amazing about it. You know, in some ways, you know, this message is kind of a cri de corps against hyper individualism. Like You know, we're so stuck in ourselves. And in fact, like infinite browsing mode is like a hall of mirrors of like psychodrama with ourselves. Who am I? What is the right choice for me? What door is particularly me? What movie is the exact thing I want to watch right now? What person is the person that's the perfect fit for me? That's all kind of self-involved. And in some ways, this call is to ask you to enter into a relationship with something outside of yourself, discover love of the other. But what it actually is, is you can have your cake and eat it too, which is that often through our relationships, through our acts of love, through our commitments over the long run, is actually how we find ourselves. And actually, not only how we learn about the other and how we learn about what love is, it's also how we learn about who we are. Um, And, you know, there's this amazing, I love this Bob Dylan line. um, He said in one documentary about him where they said, Bob, did you leave Minnesota to try to find yourself, you know, on the road or in Greenwich Village? And then he, he looks at them and is like Bob Dylan way. And he goes, nobody finds themselves. They make themselves. And in some ways, you know, it's not like there's some primordial self that is out there that when you're considering whether to enter into a relationship with something, um, you can take a guess on if that thing is true to yourself um, in the most like uh, rigorous engineering like way. And congrats, you chose something that was for yourself. No actually yourself is unfolded in those relationships through that brave courageous grace-filled act of of committing and so um you know the way to find yourself is to make it through entering into relationships with other things
0: yeah no i oh my gosh i love that everything you said and and i just kind of have this image of like this dance right because i think we are so tempted to either focus oh i can only focus on myself right now i can't i have no time for other people or the opposite i have to kind of like pour myself out um and and I never you know look at myself, but there is a stance of, of 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 constant. As you said, you have your cake and eat it too. If you spend time on yourself, you're giving to others. You give to others. You you have time for yourself, and 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 ultimately everything kind of flourishes. I, I want to um again I, something you said reminded me. I, you have this great uh, uh the sense of like slaying the dragon, right? You write about um yeah. and and these epic moments of of uh that kind of come in our our life stories where we you know we we defeat the dragon and and all as well. And and you know you kind of conjures up images of, of fantasy stories, and I always wonder, like you know, after the the dragon is slayed, like you know, what do the hobbits do? Like what do the elves <laughs> do? They like just like have dinner that night? Like what happens next? And I think you're pointing to what happens next that it's not all in those those dragon slaying moments, right? But 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 maybe you can uh, kind of expand upon that. Totally. Than-
1: yeah. You know, like when Hollywood, and it's just because you know I'm not blaming them. It's just you have to tell the story in two hours instead of you know. um you know, a an 100-hour movie that's just a whole montage covering, you know, 10 years. Um, when they want to tell a story, you have to focus on big, brave moments, like where you slay the dragon. You know, there's a bad guy, there's a big moment, there's a brave knight, they make the definitive decision to conquer all their demons at that moment and slay the dragon, and then, you know, roll credits. Um, and, you know, I think when we imagine I'm going to live a heroic life or I'm going to be courageous or I'm going to be my full self, we think, oh, one day I will have that dramatic moment. But the funny thing is, and I think this is what so many people are feeling today, is, um, you know, life doesn't present you You know, most of the time, you know, some people, you know, the shooter comes, and you know, they can dive tackle them or not. You know, some people, there are people who do like courage, but for the vast majority of us, and even for those heroic people, the vast majority of the rest of their lives, um, life doesn't present you, you know, dramatic, decisive moments that spring up out of nowhere. Most of us are just confronted with normal morning after normal morning, where we can decide, what am I gonna do with this you know, day or life, <laughs> you know? Um, should I, am I gonna start working on something or keep working at something or not, you know? And so life is just a stream of little ordinary moments out of which we must make our own meeting. And what I'm trying to argue is there's like a different type of heroism that's not like dragon slaying Hollywood heroism, but long haul heroism where, you know, by going to the meeting every Tuesday and running it. You wake up five years later and you find out that you've built this beautiful community. Or by honing a craft over a long run in a community of practice, you wake up 10 years later and you really have this beautiful mastery. And this beautiful, it's not just about you, this beautiful community of other people that are appreciating your mastery or you're co appreciating each other's mastery of that craft. And, you know, we can see this in really practical lives like anyone who's a parent or anyone who's, you know, in a long term relationship or marriage. Um, they see that, you know, it's not some big dramatic moment where, you know, your romance is shown. It's it's every day kind of putting in the work of this. Um, and you can see it in the heroic stories of like American history, for example. You know, it's funny, uh, you know, Rosa Parks is remembered. I, I feel so bad for Rosa Parks because she's remembered for this big, brave moment of, um, You know, sitting down in the front of the bus. But Rosa Parks, for 10 years before she sat down in the front of the bus, was secretary of the Montgomery, Alabama NAACP, putting in day in, day out work that led to the amount of community and solidarity and power that was built. So that when she sat on the front of the bus, it was a spark that had Tinder around it so that it could, you know, become a a flame that spread across the whole country Um, and you know the real Rosa we shouldn't be looking around just for buses you know our own buses and on us we got to look around to say where can we start gathering the tinder so that when the spark comes um, you know the next big change that needs to happen in this country can happen too and so I want to celebrate that part of Rosa Parks not just the others um, because that's the lesson that we can learn as kind of ordinary Americans.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense that, that, that it, again it's, it's you, you, I like this image you keep saying you're going to the meeting every Tuesday night, you're, you're you're running the meeting every Tuesday night and, and it does it sets this foundation. you know instead of like big dragons, you're like chasing small lizards out of your garden, right. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think you' I think you've done a well great a, made a great case for why we need to commit to something and, and stay through it. What what do you say to people when they demonstrate some resistance to this idea? Or maybe it's not resistance, but just some uncertainty. What what's your what's your pitch for for why yeah. how to how to make that that pivot?
1: Yeah, we have to acknowledge, and you know, I, I make sure to say this in the book, you know, right at the heart of it, there are fears that are standing in the way of commitment. I have those fears, all of us have these fears. You know, but we have to start. We have to confront them. I think this is really brave to confront these fears. Like this actually might resemble more of a decisive moment than usual, um, because it is this st- about the start of a commitment journey. Um, and um, e- we ha- the way to confront these fears is to notice the gift that is at the other side of each of them. So let me go over three of you know the fears of commitment. Yeah. So one is like fear of regret. We're scared that. Um, you know, we're gonna wake up 20 years from now and think, oh my gosh, I wish I had made a different thing to commit to. We also have like the fear of missing out. Okay, I am guess it's good that I'm committing to this. I can't think of anything else to commit to, but that commitment is gonna come with limitations that is gonna prevent me from being everywhere to everyone all the time doing the latest new thing. Um, and then there's a really interesting one that I think isn't talked about enough, but is really strong among myself and people in my generation, which is, I call the fear of association, which is we are so obsessed with being fully purely good and in ch- children of the light and like unencumbered by the messiness of the reality of what it means to be a human or to be part of things larger than ourselves that we don't want to associate with anything that is not perfectly us because um of all the warts that come with any real thing that humans do and so okay so those are the fears that are preventing us that's part of the resistance so what's on the other how do you overcome them and what's on the other side well With the fear of regret, we have to start seeing that um, we, the person 20 years from now is a person that is shaped by the decision that we made. And that decision that we made becomes part of who that person is and makes it, not like this person standing outside of time deciding you made the wrong choice. So, for example, when you move to Texas instead of move to Illinois or whatever, you know, when let's say one choice you're making, or you know, you move to Austin instead of Chicago. Um, You become an Austinite by making that choice. You find your favorite restaurants. You meet your favorite people. Perhaps you fall in love there. Perhaps you find a job there. Perhaps you get into the annual, you know, fun holidays that are part of Austin and not part of Chicago. And so when you think back in 20 years, you're a full Austinite. You're not going to think, you know, Uh, You don't know anything about Chicago, whereas you have all these relationships in the place that you've decided to do. And so, you know, it becomes part of you. It becomes part of your purpose. Your constellation of meaning is created by making the jump. So it's not like you stand outside of the constellation of meaning. The fear of missing out, you know, you start to discover as you go down commitments that um, go down the path of commitment, you start to discover that the things that you're not missing out on, Um, the things that you should have feared missing out on are actually the things at the other end of commitment. Because if you never make a commitment because you're so scared of missing out on the hot new thing, you're never going to experience, you know, your kid graduating from high school or finishing the marathon or the Google Doc idea becoming the restaurant that you wanted to create or, you know, um, you know, finishing the the professional, you know, uh, uh. credentializing process that you wanted to join, whatever it is, um, um, all of those are things you're going to miss out on by not committing to things. So there's a FOMO in non-commitment, then to commitment. So that depth of is the thing you're going to start fearing missing out on, the gift of depth. And then finally, in the fear of association, um, the, th- the reason we fear associating is because we feel like there's some platonic self- that only other things can poison when we enter into relationships with other things so better stay isolated because i have a rigid platonic self that um i don't want to have any of the outside world mess with when you as bob dylan discovered or i talked about earlier discovered that actually yourself emerges through your relationships not just as threatened by relationships Um, then you overcome the fear of association because you're saying, oh, actually, the associating is the only way I'm going to become a full person. And what the gift at the other side of that is, is community. Because you're going to join with other people who have made that brave decision to associate with that larger thing outside of themselves. The community of practice of knitters or... Fully going all in on, you know, a church that you're into or fully going on it all in on a cause or fully going all in on a place. Everyone has decided to join in with that thing that has warts and all. Maybe you even come up with collective jokes about the warts that you've been worried about associating with. And you have the comfort of friends at the other side of associating, which you'll never have in your pure, innocent isolation. Um, so uh, I think we got to overcome those fears and and get that joy of purpose and that joy of depth and that joy of friends. And community,
0: dude. Uh, you're making me think of all the hobbies I, I haven't uh, committed to. Now I gotta like go and start taking up an instrument and all sorts of things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, you know I I, I am wondering. You, you're talking about like kind of. Um, uh, warts and institutions and things. And I, I'm wondering, uh, you know, it, 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 obviously an era of social media, an era of, of, of quick snap decisions and, and, and all these, these things, you know, we get pegged uh, or painted a certain color based on, you know, one misstep. How do you help people um, still commit uh, and still kind of work through all the warts and all that come with associations, um, even when sometimes missteps, you um, uh, can, can be magnified and easily taken out of context, uh, and um, and that might further cause people to be afraid to um, to really go all in in a public uh, and, and authentic way.
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the 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 big kind of uh, person who helped me understand this um, was kind of reading Alastair McIntyre, um, and you know the philosopher, and he he wrote this book after virtue, and um, and he has this really beautiful idea, which is that all of our senses of meaning only emerge out of kind of stable communities. So, you know, when Tony Hawk does a 900, um, if he did that without the community of practice of skateboarding around the 900 that he did, he would just be kind of a random TikTok video of a thing that kind of looked interesting. Um, (laughs) But because... A community of practice called American skateboard or international skateboarding had arisen over, you know, 30 years before he did the 900. The 900 was really epic or something. You know, Michael Jordan doing a dunk on a random ring doesn't mean anything unless there's a community of practice called basketball. And same goes for all communities, you know, um, Islam, you know, Christianity, Christianity. the American left, you know, the the community of, uh, you know, knitters, all, all different types of, you know, I'm, I'm my examples, I'm always <laughs> grabbing for random example, you know, professions, they're a community of practice. All of the meaning is created internally. And that's where like our sense of heroism comes. It can only make sense in terms of the materials of the community around it. And so what's one thing that's so hard about social media is that you just have this. Uh, uh, you know, cacophony of all these different community of meanings all thrown into one's place and pulled out of different community of meanings into different places. And then you see someone go viral for sounding ridiculous. And then, you know, someone else comes in the retweets and they're like, well, actually, you don't understand. This is how we do things in, you know, this state or whatever. <laughs> and what they're really saying when they say that is, you know, you don't understand our community, our constellation of meaning, within the constellation of meaning is where you'll understand it. And so my, my challenge for people, one of the joys of commitment, I kind of talk about it in Overcoming the Fear of Association is when you really commit to something, you'll start to notice that, you know, there's a real deep, good feeling about being part of a constellation of meaning that comes from a community, um, in like internal to that community. And it's actually, you'll think, oh my gosh, I've been living on the thin gruel of like the community of everyone. And there still is some like community of everyone, cosmopolitanism or something. And, you know, we have some good projects coming out of the community of everyone, like human rights and, you know, other things. But to get really thick, you know, meaning, you have to join a community of particular people where you can start building culture together or tapping into culture that has been built already and kind of getting into that world. Um, And out of that, you'll get your thick sense of meaning. And then you'll start saying, you know, there are going to be some, some haters that don't understand me and don't understand what, you know, this internal constellation of meaning that we have had as a community. But that is so outweighed by the deep joy and the thick feeling that you have from being inside of one. Um, and you know, so I, I think, uh, you got to taste it by, uh, you know, taking the leap of faith and going deep into something.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want any thin gruel, that's for sure. Based yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, obviously we've kind of already been touching on, on, um, the kind of the, 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 the civic engagement part of, of, of where commitment lies. And, and I know that's a big part of your work. Um, and a lot of things that you're thinking about, um, when you're, th- when you're thinking about kind of forming a community, you know, you, you've just described like, you know, there there's a community of everybody, but then there's these, there's these these specific communities of practice that are that are really important. Um, how 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 do you encourage people to? I don't want to say start, but how do you encourage people to really um, use the the tools and dedicated to to nurture and nourish um, a certain uh, identity, a certain community in a way that's going to be kind of real leaven for the larger community of everyone.
1: Totally. You know, and this is really important. And in many ways, I wrote that, you know, my first love was not like, oh, I, I want to talk about commitment and relationships. My first love is civic life in America. Right. And like this is a project that I really, really care about and I think is really, really important. And what I mean by civic life in America is, you know, the public problems and solutions and work that we do together in our shared public life. Um, and civic life in America is really in trouble, you know, um, you know, we have had a, you know, as written by Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone and found by others, there's been a huge decline over the last few decades in participation in civic life in America, um, in the amount of civic organizations that we're part of, in the amount of ways that we're participating. There's been writers basically since the mid-century who have been writing and lamenting the fact that there's this sense that we're not a participatory You know, country uh, anymore. We're losing a sense of being a participatory country as we sense that all of public life should be dealt with by someone out there. You know, oh, the businesses are handling it, or oh, the government is handling it, instead Mm -hmm. of what we really need to have a thriving, you know, country is to have us all participating and co creating our shared world. And that's what public life is. Now, how does that kind of abstract idea, how does the rubber hit the road on that? How do we get more concrete about that? Well, What that is on an individual level is each of us deciding that we're going to take ownership over co-ownership and responsibility for the future of, of our public life. So just like when you're, you know, if you had a moment when you had roommates and there was a common room um you know and things in common besides your kind of private bedrooms in the apartment all the pots Um, all the pans all the pots (laughs) all the pans all the rent that needs to be paid all the you know what's going on on the porch what's going on in this what's the community of the five of you working together or something like that whose cat is Um, this yeah
0: yeah yeah, whose cat is
1: this how do we deal with tension you know all the aspects of it um there needs to everyone you know the, the the apartment runs better when people say i'm gonna take responsibility for this whole thing i see it as something that's part of who i am i'm gonna take co-ownership over it i'm gonna take co-create i'm gonna uh you know use my co creativity to help decide the future of it and the way you know because we can't all individually wrap our hands around everything the way that that usually manifests is taking over some part of it you know and so the way that civic life, a healthy civic life works is each of us find some corner of public life in addition to, you know, voting on everything and, you know, raising alarm when there's an emergency that affects everything on the day to day level or week to week level. um, It's, you know, finding a corner of public life, whether it's caring about you know the environment or the parks or the you know the design of streets urbanists working on that or you know working on social services or working on you know some reform project to make the government do something differently or you know getting involved in uh you know a labor union or a tenant union or so you know all these different corners of public life that you could take ownership over and you know having part of your life be putting in the work to uh craft a future of that hopefully in the spirit of the public interest and um you know, spreading the good uh, over and, you know, stopping the bad and solving public problems. And all of that requires commitment. You know, the people that are the most effective citizens. Are the ones that just persist, you know, and um and you know, put in the work. And there's not a, you know, you're gonna find out if you're a super idealist that in one year all of your dreams are not gonna be made and you're gonna be disappointed that like, oh gosh, we had all these dreams and we've been working at this for one year and we still haven't, you know, done the thing we wanted yet. But you're also gonna discover that in five years, even three years or five years or ten years, you're gonna be amazingly surprised at how much you got done. Um, and that's usually how it goes uh, with this. So that's why commitment's so important on civic life.
0: Yeah, no. Thank, thank you. Beautifully said. I, I know one of the other areas um, that you research uh, is solidarity, and solidarity is is a key uh, tenet of Catholic social teaching. Um, and but I wonder if if you might tell us a kind of what you've learned about solidarity in in the context of this of civic engagement um, from your own research, and 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 probably most importantly, how we kind of listeners can 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 use what you've you've learned to really begin to integrate it into our own our own life and our own civic civic life.
1: Yeah, you know, I see. I see public life and kind of civics often in two dimensions. So one I call deepening democracy, which is about our relationship to the kind of structure of society. So, you know, all the institutions that are out there, the medical, the law, the architecture, the government, you know, all the businesses, all these different institutions, the environment, all these different institutions. And, you know, deepening democracy is about, you know, finding our power to co-create, you know, uh, those institutions. So us kind of versus the institutions, us bringing to bear our our thoughts and responsibility on them. But there's a second uh, spectrum and dimension to civic life, which is our relationship to each other, you know, um, which is different. You know, it's not like we want to co-create, you know, we want to use our power against each other. The project with solidarity, deepening solidarity, is the project of connecting us all. You know, um, and there are different ways of connecting. You know, I think there's a version of very thin solidarity, which is kind of like in our imagination connecting us all, like seeing someone across the globe and feeling like we are connected to them, to a very, which we I think we need a lot more, a much thicker sense of solidarity, which is actually building relationships, um, uh, you know, with more people in more ways. So when I see a country or a world becoming more solidaristic, What I actually think that is, is that is about the literal task of building more relationships between people in this country and in this world that weave our destinies together. So if like democracy is about, you know, everyone having a chance at realizing their dreams, you know, solidarity is about us each seeing each other's dreams as part of our own you know, us uh, entering into relationships with other people. Part of that is entering into, you know, simply a challenge for our time because we're so isolated, is entering into relationships even with people like us and around us. um, You know, we're, we're actually, even though that is the easiest part of solidarity, just like people similar to us entering into relationships, we're actually not doing that good at that right now. We're so isolated. So just kind of like relearning the art of becoming friends and, you know, getting to know people. But then there's, The kind of higher challenge of solidarity, which is bridging across divides and noticing where there are. And I think this is a real Catholic calling noticing where there are lines that are drawn in society that distance us from each other or distance groups from each other segregation. And building bridges and connections around them that blur the lines between us. Um, You know, sometimes that's lines between communities like segregation and sometimes that's marginalization, which is like, you know, the people on the outskirts of the center, you know, at the margins that are kind of on the fraying edges of a social network and bringing them inside which is what we're always you know that's one of the beauties of christianity it's you know the top shall become the bottom the bottom shall become the top the out shall become the in, the in is called to go out um and you know divides you know our job is to repair breaches um and i think that's the call of solidarity you know both um but i think an important thing is it's not just of the mind you know i feel for people across the world it's actually doing the work of actually connecting with people across the world, which I think, you know, the, the hardcore institution of the church does, you know, some of the best jobs of, of many institutions of, you know, actually building that real solidarity of building relationships with people around the world, but also a challenge right in our backyards. We need to uh, bridge some divides too.
0: Yeah. As you're talking, I kind of the, there's a lot of, imagery of movement that's that's happening at least in in my mind as i'm listening to you right this this idea of co-creating there's a need to kind of go out and 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 discover ourselves and relationships and i like i love what you said about weaving our destinies together um and there's just this this sense of like kind of pulling on threads in ourselves and then in other people and 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 making something um something new something together something that unifies us and i and i I like that image a lot and it it really does evoke a need to to do work it's it's not necessarily comfortable right it's there's a need to kind of um uh kind of get out there in the breach as you said um go ahead
1: my favorite quote on this just a very quick one please but my favorite my favorite I'll, I'll say it you know my favorite jesuit there you go um, I'll, I'll pick i'll choose favorites love them all that's jesuit is probably uh, gonna listen now so you
0: better be careful um
1: uh father james keenan at boston college who um uh was uh for many years the kind of the the um priest at my local parish um he has this wonderful phrase of you know you know, Catholics in many ways are similar to other sects of Christianity, but there's one virtue that we really emphasize a lot more. You know, there are many ways we are different, but he points out there's one virtue that Catholics are like the the deepest thinkers on, which is mercy. Mm. And he defines mercy as, I love this, the willingness to enter into the chaos of others. Mm and i think like an act of mercy is an act of solidarity it's like when we talk about the corporal works of mercy you know it's of uh, you know feed the sick give water to the thirsty visit the imprisoned you know no, no, no visit the sick uh you know feed the hungry give water to the thirsty clothe the naked you know uh uh visit the imprisoned you know bury the dead all of that um is chaotic it's it's and and the sin Is actually comfort Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's the sin is saying I don't want to think about it Uh, he uses this phrase I want to I don't want to bother to love I don't want to deal with this chaos that comes with connecting across divides or going to the margins and what he says the call of mercy is not the call of like a judge saying I'm gonna lower your sentence you know that's the like popular sense of mercy the Catholic sense of mercy is I am going to be willing I'm going to bother to love. I'm not going to sin as failure to bother to love. I'm going to be willing to enter into the chaos of others. And here's the thing. It's not just classic, you know, oh, when we're bridging divides and there's intercultural exchange, that's awkward. Or people at the margins come with a lot of chaos in their lives. It's everyone. You know, we all, when you really are vulnerable bring a lot of chaos into other people's lives and we are we should be thank heavens that other people are merciful to us <laughs> um because if we're sharing our real selves we're, we're going to be sharing a lot of chaos um and and thus on the other end we're called to be willing to enter into the cast of others just as we hope others will be willing to do to us and as keenan points out just as god did to us what is more chaotic than kind of being a reigning God, but then deciding, ah, you know, I'm going to enter into time as a, as a human. <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's really being willing to enter into the chaos of others. So, um, yeah. if we're called to act similarly. I think that's what we got to do.
0: Yeah, no. And I, <laughs> I, I think I, I, absolutely, I'm glad you, I'm glad you quoted that. And, um, and commit to the, the the mercy demands commitment too right to 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 kind of underline your own point here like god commits to enter into our chaos it's not a one-time deal it's not like a here's a band-aid thing it's constant entering into uh mer- it, it showing mercy and i think that's that's even harder right to, to even uh again you've written a whole book about it i don't have to tell you but but it's just that that sense of of mercy isn't a once and done um, but a constant totally you
1: know it's not oh gosh this is chaotic let me click out of my browser window mm-hmm. you know that's why it it's uh yeah it's it's um yeah maybe we should do an addendum it's like willing to enter into the chaos of others and then stick around to yeah, stick around <laughs> you know um because and because the love you know the love overcomes the the desire to kind of hide away from it um
0: I think too. I, I um, let me try an idea on you, and you can tell me if this is uh, if this falls flat. But but to kind of continue with the religious language, um, the idea of redemption, the idea of, of of we enter into the chaos of others, um, people we may disagree with, people we may have a really hard time understanding where they're coming from, but we never write them off. We always give them a, a chance to, to kind of come back, right, or, or or not come back to us, but just kind of come back to the center, come back to God. That also seems to me like a both an exercise in commitment, but also uh, a deeply spiritual practice. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Amen. You know, I'm reading this uh, biography, David Cayley's biography of the radical priest, Ivan Illich, Mm. Um, and radical in kind of a very interesting sense of the term radical, kind of like questioning uh, so many of the roots of like presumptions of modern life. And so much of what Ivan Illich writes about uh, that I just love and, and you hear it a lot in Pope Francis's uh, language, is he talks about being open to surprise. Yeah, okay. Um, and, you know, everything might be telling you that your assumptions about this person uh, is one way. You know, I've got this person down. You know, it's like it's such a great American uh, vice, which is we love, like, Thinking we got, we, we, we got other people, you know, we know exactly the score of other people. And what he said, you know, what Illich said was a Christian calling is like being open to radical surprise that the person who was doing a lot of bad could suddenly start doing a lot of good. The person that you thought was one way could be another way. The person that you thought had no ideas to contribute to, you know, our world actually has a brilliant idea. The person who you thought, you know, didn't have love underneath all the surface of complexes and trauma and all that deep underneath does have that, you know, and he talks about some Brazilian um, Bishop that Illich was friends with who said, you know, who was being, um, Uh, you know, hurt by, you know, the dictatorship in Brazil in the mid-century. And, you know, he would have to go talk to the generals and the generals would be so cruel and so against what they were doing. And the bishop always told Illich, um, you gotta, you gotta see that there's some ember deep inside that person, even if you think they're your total enemy and you gotta just blow on the ember. You gotta just blow and blow with faith that like that ember might catch on fire you know and like reveal the true you know goodness that's underneath that person and i i just think you know that's a real religious calling you know everything about kind of flat solely materialist solely fearful modern life um would say that's crazy why why have that belief but i think we have to have faith that um we have to have the patience to wait out and and let people surprise us.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Cause you would a person would say, Why waste my time? But we we're saying yeah. you have to commit commit your time to, to that belief. Yeah. Well you've you've obviously been been um been pulling all sorts of spiritual threads. Um but I wonder if, if you could um uh, kind of share more about um kind of your own experience of Ignatian spirituality or or or, or, or Jesuits in general and how that shapes or has shaped or, or appears in your in your own writing and, and your own work, particularly as you're looking to, to do more in civic engagement?
1: Well, I've been very inspired. I've been very inspired by their, um, you know, the active life of Jesuits that, you know, it's a very public, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, their charism is like, you know, formation of people to be kind of public people and their act to kind of engage in the world, not just kind of sit um, monastically even though that's also very important <laughs> um but you know i i feel as like a person who likes civic life very tied to that just kind of in general i talk a bit in the book um you know in addition to quoting uh keenan um i also interviewed um you know this uh jesuit father brian mcdermott at georgetown who had so much wisdom about you know that really made me come to understand that when I'm talking about commitment I'm actually talking about relationship and that when we're talking about vocation which Jesuits think so much about um you know it's not like I I I and the self make some decision after rationally analyzing everything It's a dance between kind of that inner voice, which in the non-secular way of saying it is God's voice inside of you, um, telling you, you know, it's about a relationship with God telling you what your calling is. Um, You know, um, you need to quiet, Brian McDermott, Father McDermott talked about, you know, you need to quiet yourself down so that you can hear that inner voice uh, to know what you want. I was very moved by that. Um, And he had this wonderful story about his own vocation that I felt very, it was very Jesuit, where um, I said, you know why didn't you quit you know you you've been a priest for so long you know maybe you fell in love with someone maybe you wanted to do something else maybe you, this was hard you know why didn't you quit and he said god had his talents in me god had his talents in me and in so many ways he has this kind of very formally religious job but in so many commitments whether it's love of place or love of person or love of community or love of a craft or love of a cause um all of it you know when I I interviewed fifty long haul hearers for this, it was so much that the calling had their talons in them. Mm. It was a mysterious relationship. It wasn't like I made the right decision and then through power of will, you know, and tips and tricks every day from the productivity <laughs> blogs I read, I learned how to stick with it. It was giving in to a relationship that had its that grew in you. I I always like the organic, you mm. know. Uh, but I, I like how strong Father McDermott talked about that God had his talons in me. Um, My final thing is, you know, on a very practical level, I talk about Ignatian discernment in the book, um, which kind of is very connected to what I was just saying. I didn't even set it up that way, but now I'm noticing, which is, um, you know, you talk, you, it's, it's really about thinking about the embodied choice and seeing what feelings come up in you. I don't need to say to you, but for the listeners who want to know what I mean by Ignatian discernment, you know, Um, Usually, you know, the rationalist is like, think about everything abstractly, hold both of the ideas of the different paths you could take in your head and do pros and cons lists. And what Ignatian Discernment calls you to do is actually like, hold the idea in your head of, okay, imagine and embody myself moving to Chicago or something. Um, and, uh, And what feelings and emotions and inspiration is coming up in me as... I hold that embodied self in. Is the relationship calling out to me now? Let me think about something else, um, and see if it's coming up in me. So, kind of turning off the analytical brain and letting emotions and inspiration in the heart and the soul and your inner voice and you know God's plan for you speak. Um, one very funny way I talked about uh, that I've noticed in my personal life, completely outside of Ignatian discernment, but what is kind of like this is my friend John. Um, anytime someone comes to him for advice on a decision. He just picks one of the two options that they said and then says, oh, you should do this with total confidence. (laughs) You know, most people when it's like, you know, should I be a nurse or should I be an engineer or something? They're like, "Okay, well, let's think about it together. You know, like, let's join and analyze it together. What John goes oh, definitely be a nurse or something. And then the person either is like, yeah. Yes. And then he goes, "Good. Okay, that was good advice." Or they're like, "No, no, no, I don't want to be that." And he's like, "Okay, well, then be an engineer." <laughs> and they're like, That's "What do you read?" And what he was doing was forcing a little like mini version of Ignatian Serbit by forcing them to really imagine taking a side and seeing what emotions come up. So, yeah. I don't know, that was a Motley Crew of Random anecdotes. I, I'm not like a expert on this, but um, those are ways it's touched me.
0: No, that, oh, that was awesome. I, I la- last example too, because there's a bodily reaction too, right? I imagine if you say like be a nurse, the person's like, oh, like you can feel it in your body. And I think Ignatian yeah. spirituality speaks of the whole person, right? Caring for the whole person. Yes. You feel it in your body. You feel it in your spirit. You feel it in your mind. Um, and I, I that's, I'm going to start trying that. I think. Last question. <laughs> Let me give it just one last question. You, you've, you've, um. You've written about some kind of real uh, spiritual leaders, right? You have Dorothy Day, Pope Francis, Thomas Merton, others. And I wonder um, what you draw from, you could just pick one or, or all of them, whatever you, or someone different if you like, what do you draw from their way of engaging um, with civic life uh, that you think is particularly relevant, poignant, necessary uh, for us now?
1: You know, what I like about so many of them, um, and especially like Dorothy Day and the civil rights movement folks, Mm -hmm. is there was a personalist and concrete aspect to the work that they did. Um, They, you know, they, um, it wasn't just fighting for abstract ideals. You know, they had some abstract ideals, obviously, um, that they were fighting for, but they put them whole selves. They, they were able to find in the work with their kind of comrades in fighting for the cause or their enemies when fighting against the cause or the people that they were organizing to serve in it, they never lost sight of like we're dealing with actual concrete people Mm. and um, and they so that was one aspect of it like Dorothy Day is the best on this you know she's fighting war she's fighting for labor unions everywhere but she's also loving the people in her houses of hospitality you know Um, and knows their names you know and and doesn't let it become kind of an idol of abstraction um The other thing is in doing that in like forcing yourself to deal with real people. And what I'm really talking about in this book is real relationships with real people, which it's not just like the condescension of like, I am there for this real person. It's I am entering vulnerably into a relationship that could not only transform them, but also transform me Um, in doing that. It's kind of a spiritual discipline. And so, you know, I I talked with a lot of um, I went on this like wonderful program in 2011 when I was in college um, where we met a lot of original civil rights fighters. Um, And, uh, you know, we all wanted to talk about their cause when we talked to them. We're like, oh, let's talk about racial justice. Let's talk about the fight. What was your strategy? What did you win? What is the cause now? Um, And I, I really care about the cause they fought for. I care about the modern versions of that cause, continued racial justice and the like. But what all of them wanted to talk about was their spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. They wanted to talk about nonviolence, which was their spiritual discipline, which is much grander than just the absence of violence. It's it's basically like kind of Christian pacifism and um, you know a, a Christian practice of being called to what they called a gopic love to each other, um, to you know really love your enemy, to really love each other, to really feel like. Um, It's systems. It's not people that we're fighting. And when they train together as civil rights fighters, um, most of the conversations in the training was about, like, how can we all develop in our spiritual discipline of nonviolence? Um, And so it's kind of like a lot of inner work, too, through their engagement. And I think a lot of civic actors and, you know, even radical cause fighters that I care about could use a lot more uh, discipline, spiritual discipline that says not, you know, that takes a position not of, um, we have all the answers and our goal is to just kind of find the power to imprint that on, you know, the object of our, our fight. But rather, together we are growing and developing something um, that's going to transform us and transform the country as we do that. Um, you see the same thing in the Solidarity Movement in Poland. Um, you know, it was a lot of work of building the internal community and becoming um, something together. Uh, in addition, you know, almost as much as the actual strategy of whatever cause they were fighting for. You know, um, one of the priests of the Solidarity Movement said, uh, I write about this in the book, we're just growing a forest here. I'm, I'm saying it in the American vernacular. <laughs> you know, we're We're just growing a forest here. And one day everyone's going to look around and be like, there's a forest here. And that's the revolution. Mm. And in some ways, it's not like a big bloody battlefield. It's we are growing a way of being and a way of relating together internally that's going to be so inspiring and so spiritually moving that it's going to spread. And it will, as it's doing it, reweave the rules and the structures as we do it. And that's where like solidarity and democracy comes together. The way we relate to each other changes the institutions. And um, I think there's a real power in that that is a prophecy that is very quiet today. And I think we need to refine that voice.
0: Blowing those embers, right? Yes. Pete, well, uh, if folks want to learn more about your work, about upcoming projects, uh, where should they go? What would you tell them to be on the lookout for?
1: Yeah, I'm at petedavis.org, and my b- big project I'm working on now is my sister and I are touring a film called Join or Die, which is a uh, very on these themes. Uh, it's about community in America, and Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. Our funny, our goofy tagline is. This is a film about why you should join a club and why the fate of America
0: may depend on it. So I um, uh, hope you can check it out, joinerdie.film. Awesome. And we'll drop some links uh, in, the, in the show notes. Pete, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for, uh, for hanging out with us today. Thanks for having me on. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference Communications team is Mike Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, Kristen Smith, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get our weekly email reflection series, Now Discern This, by visiting Jesuits.org weekly if you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.